Chapter One of A Vanished Hand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Mitzi. A Vanished Hand by Sarah Dowdney. Chapter One In a Back Room. For one shall grasp and one resign, one drink life's rue and one its wine, and God shall make the balance good. Whittier. Elsie Kilner had a battle to fight, and it must be fought after her own fashion. It was the kind of battle which is fought every day and every hour, but the battlefield is always a silent place, and there is neither broken weapon nor crimson stain to tell us where the strife has been. Elsie's battle was fought in a back room in All Saints Street on an afternoon in March. It was not a gloomy room, although the window looked out upon walls and roofs and chimneys, she had a good clear view of the sky. Some pigeons occupied a little house outside one of the neighbouring windows, and there was a roof covered with red tiles on which they loved to strut and plume their feathers in the sunshine. To a woman country-born, the sight of pigeons and red tiles called up visions of an old home. The memories which came to Elsie in her London room were as fresh and sweet as the breath of early spring flowers. She could see again the red manor house among the Sussex hills, and the old green garden which winter could never quite despoil. The cherry tree spread its boughs close to her window, and seemed to fill the room with the delicate dewy light of its blossoms. The winds came blowing in, sweet and chill from thymy common and sheep trimmed down. Perhaps she had never seen her home so plainly with her bodily eyes as she saw it now in imagination. Our everyday blessings are too common to be looked at in their true light, but when time and change have put them far away from us, we see them in all their beauty. It makes me feel desperate, she said half aloud to herself. She had a dark, delicate face, as changeful as an April sky. It was not a happy face. The dark eyes were restless, the soft lips often quivered, and yet, in spite of sorrow and unrest, and the experiences of nearly nine and twenty years, there was an extraordinary freshness, almost girlishness in her appearance, which did not suffer even from the close proximity of younger women. The morning dress, fitting closely to her graceful figure, told its own story of recent loss. In that old manor house among the Sussex hills, her bright youth had been calmly spent. Then came her mother's death, and changes began in the home life. Her father was growing weak in mind and body. Elsie was the only daughter, and the household cares and anxieties pressed heavily on her heart and brain. When Robert, her brother, suggested with all possible kindliness that it would be well if he came with his wife to the manor and shared her labours, she welcomed the proposal gladly. So Robert and Bertha arrived, bringing with them their little girl and her governess, and the old peace fled away forever. For two miserable years Elsie lived on in that altered home, and saw everything that she had loved sliding gradually out of her hold. Robert introduced many new plans, all for his father's comfort, as he continually declared. Bertha took charge of the household, and the simple habits of the past were given up. Old servants were pronounced incompetent and dismissed, 
and when Elsie protested against these changes, her brother and his wife dropped the mask of civility. There is no need to go over all the details of the wretched story. Old Mr Kilner, growing more feeble every day, suffered himself to be guided entirely by Robert and Bertha, and Elsie soon found that his heart was turned away from her. Then came the end. The will was read, and everything was left to Robert Kilner. But Elsie cannot say that she's not provided for, said Bertha to her friends. Her godmother, old Mrs Hardy, you know, left her a hundred and fifty a year. Quite a fortune, is it not? Turned out of the old home, Elsie had come straight to London and had sought shelter at a boarding school where a friend of hers was a teacher. Then, after a careful search of six months, a friend had directed her to this quiet house and she had gratefully settled here. She welcomed solitude as one who has so many things to think over that it is indispensable. There was a letter grasped tightly in her hand as she stood looking out of the window. It had come from the rector's wife, who had been her mother's friend in happy days gone by. The old lady had written to say that there were wild doings at the manor, and the countryside was ringing with the tales of Robert's extravagance and dissipation. The Kilners had never been wealthy. There was just enough to keep up the old house in quiet comfort, that was all. Robert will soon come to an end of everything, wrote the clergyman's wife with the frankness of long friendship. We have heard that he was deeply involved before he came to live at the manor. Bertha is beginning to look sad and worn and crestfallen. People have looked coldly on her since you went away, and if she ever had any influence over her husband, she has lost it now. The air is full of unwholesome rumours. I'm glad you're no longer here, my dear child. The letter had given Elsie a cruel pleasure, a pleasure which was so hideous that her better self could not endure the sight of it. It was only the darker side of her nature which could entertain this hateful joy for a moment, and so the battle began in her heart on that sunny March afternoon. There were certain outer influences which seemed to act upon that inward strife. The sky helped her with glimpses of holy blue and faint hints of the coming spring. Even the spire of a church helped her, although it could only point a very little way up into the far heaven. She stood quite still, wrestling silently with that fierce temptation to rejoice over her enemy's downfall. All Bertha's insulting speeches and unkind actions came back into her mind. It might be impossible to love her, but it was, it must be possible to be sorry for her blighted life and darkened home. Elsie called up a vision of the dressy, well-to-do Bertha, who had always put herself into a front place, and wondered how she could play the part of a neglected wife, looked down upon by her neighbours and forgotten by the world. The thought of the crushed woman, who had so little in her interior world to help her, was not without effect. Pity triumphed. Elsie's dark eyes were suddenly dimmed with tears. She was grieved for Bertha and ashamed of herself. The fight was over, and a voice within her seemed to say that it would never have to be so fiercely fought again. 
She drew a deep breath of relief as she turned away from the window, putting the letter into her pocket. The tea tray, with its solitary cup and saucer, was waiting on the table, and Elsie poured out tea, congratulating herself that she was alone. She was not an unsociable woman, but the boarding school, with all its noisy, merry occupants, had set her longing for solitude. She had felt far too weary and dispirited to enter into the fun and prattle of the girls. While she drank her tea, she glanced round the little room, surveying the decorations which had kept her busy for a day or two. Some relics of her old home life were gathered here. A quaint overlooking glass, some bits of ancient china, some photographs, and a goodly number of books. Her little clock ticked cheerfully on the mantelpiece. One or two richly coloured fans and screens brightened the walls. There was a faint scent of sandalwood in the air. She had not yet unlocked the handsome desk which stood on a table in the corner, and it occurred to her that she would answer some of her neglected letters that very evening. Going to the desk and opening it, she noticed for the first time the table on which it had been placed. It stood in the darkest part of the room, and she had not observed its old-fashioned claw feet and curiously wrought brass handles of its drawer. It was not a sham drawer, but a real one which opened easily with a gentle pull and appeared at first sight to be quite empty. It's large enough to hold a good many of my treasures, thought Elsie, putting in her hand. And here are some old papers, quite at the back. I'll take them out to make room for other things. The papers were not old or discoloured by time, although the dust had settled upon them pretty thickly. They looked like pages torn out of a diary, and were covered with writing which struck Elsie with a sense of familiarity. This handwriting, firm, black, legible, was like her own. How interesting, she said to herself. I've always flattered myself that mine was an uncommon hand, but somebody, a woman evidently, has stolen my E's and B's and G's and Y's. I should like to know a little more about her. She forgot all about the open desk and unanswered letters and sat down on the edge of the sofa near the window with the papers on her lap. The shadow had vanished from the delicate expressive face. Her dark eyes brightened. Elsie had the happy temperament which is charmed with every little bit of novelty that it can find. She loved, as she had often said, to investigate things, and always caught eagerly at the slightest clue which might lead to a delightful labyrinth of mystery. The manuscript began abruptly. The first words on which Elsie's glance rested were these. If I could only be sure that someone would be kind to little Jamie. This sentence was written at the top of the first page, and then came a vacant space. Lower down, in the middle of the leaf, the writer had gone on. What new life came to me all at once when I met Harold for the first time. The path was so flowery and bright that I had no fear of the turnings of the way. It seemed the most natural thing in the world that we should meet and walk on together all our lives. No, we did not meet. He overtook me as I was sauntering along and looked into my face with that look which a man gives the woman who is to belong to him for ever and ever. Elsie paused in her reading and lifted her gaze thoughtfully to the evening sky. Her face had changed again. 
the expression of eyes and mouth was wistful and tender. No man has ever loved me in that fashion, she mused. I've had lovers, but I was never meant for them, nor they for me. I wonder why this unknown woman had the joy of finding her spirit mate when such a joy has been denied to me. Are they married? Where is she now? I wish I knew her. No one who had seen Elsie at that moment would have doubted that she had had lovers. She was very pretty today, prettier at twenty-eight than she had been in the days of girlhood. Some new feeling of peace was creeping into her heart and hushing all its turmoil into a sweet rest. Some new interest was beginning to stir in her life. Much was quieted within her and much was wakening. She felt as if she had roused after an uneasy sleep and tasted the first freshness of a fair morning. She sat a little while in silence, thinking about the unknown writer and her Harold. Although she had only read a few lines, she felt drawn towards this woman who she'd never seen. It would have been good to have had her for a friend. Where was she now? Living somewhere with Harold, perhaps far away in the country? Elsie could fancy the pair coming homeward through ferny lanes in the first shade of the twilight. She pictured the woman, dark-eyed and dark-haired, like herself, and the man tall and fair with a grave yet gentle face. They had a great deal to say to each other, as those who are one in spirit often have. They answered each other's thoughts. There was the fullness of a calm content in every tone. And then she turned again to the manuscript. End of chapter 1